Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about why envy isn't always a bad thing and how the Coriolis effect affects the way things on Earth rotate. We'll also answer a listener question about how RNA knows how to read DNA with some help from a special guest from the Carnegie Science Center. Let's satisfy some curiosity. If you're like me, you may have learned over the years that envy isn't always the healthiest emotion out there. What good is it to want what someone else has anyway? Well, according to research, there is some good in that, but only if it's the right kind of envy. I'll get into how you can use envy to your advantage, but first let's define some terms. Psychologists say there are three main ways we react to successful people, with admiration, with benign envy, or with malicious envy. All three of these feelings start with what's technically known as an upward social comparison. In other words, you look at someone who's better than you at something, and you're reacting to the difference between the two of you. Now, that first feeling of admiration is when you take joy in that other person's success while you accept yourself for who you are. Envy is the opposite of that, where you want to close that gap between you and the other quote-unquote better person. The two flavors of envy are very different, though. Malicious envy means you close that gap by attacking the better person and bringing them down. A lot of the time you feel that way because you feel like the other person didn't deserve their success. You probably see where I'm going with this. Benign envy is where you want to close that gap by working harder and rising to that better person's level. By the way, there are languages that use completely different words for malicious envy and benign envy, including Dutch, Thai, and German. So not a completely novel idea. And in 2011, Dutch researchers studied Dutch university students for a study published in Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin. They found that benign envy was actually more motivational than admiration. When the students thought about those moments of benign envy, they said they were more motivated to work harder in school, and they actually did study harder than when they thought about moments of admiration. The researchers found this was most effective where students believed that change was easy and within their reach. This is important. Because research has shown that compulsively working towards impossible goals can be bad for your health. So the trick is, if you can keep the mindset that yes, you can rise up to be as good as that person you envy, then you'll be on the right track to making yourself a better person. Maybe even the better person. (laughs) Remember when we talked about some of the most Googled scientific misconceptions on this podcast? Well, one of them was the myth that toilets in the Southern Hemisphere swirl in the opposite direction as they do up here in the Northern Hemisphere. That's not a thing that happens. And we mentioned the myth probably came from people not fully understanding a thing called the Coriolis effect. Today, we wanted to circle back to that concept and dig into what the Coriolis effect actually is and how it affects us. And if that sounds familiar to some of you, do you know where I first learned about this, Ashley? Was it The Simpsons? Because that's where I first learned about it. Really? Yeah. No. For me, it was Call of Duty for Modern Warfare. How? Because the Coriolis effect actually affects sniper rifle fire. Because snipers are firing from so far away, the curvature of the earth actually has to be taken into effect for what you're shooting. And they programmed that into the game and explained the Coriolis effect in the game during a sniper mission. My jaw has dropped. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So Call of Duty fans, listen up. (laughs) much more educational than the way I learned about it. (laughs) (laughs) It was very hands-on. Well, the Coriolis effect makes wind, water, and pretty much every other free-moving thing curve with the rotation of the Earth on its axis. The two basic concepts at play here are the spherical geometry of the Earth and Newton's first law. 
The Earth is about 24,000 miles around at the equator, and it makes a complete rotation once a day. This means that someone standing still in Ecuador is actually moving about 1,000 miles an hour faster than someone standing still on the North Pole. You're moving faster the closer you are to the equator. If you're standing on, say, the 45th parallel on the border between Wyoming and Montana, then the ground is moving about 750 miles an hour. Now, Newton's first law states that objects in motion tend to stay in motion. This means that if you stood in Montana and threw a baseball hard enough to reach a city in Ecuador, you'd miss your target because that city in Ecuador would be rotating along the Earth's axis faster than Montana was. Now, imagine the difference in velocity in the ground under the northernmost edge of a hurricane and its southernmost edge. Hurricanes can be several hundred miles in diameter. It's a big difference. Hurricanes spin counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere because of their enormous size. Their 100-mile diameters lead to huge differences in ground velocity between the northernmost and southernmost edges of the storm system. In order for Coriolis forces to be noticeable, the systems they impact have to be very large. Its effect on small fluid systems, like toilets, is so small it's virtually undetectable. What this means in practice is that the direction a toilet flushes has more to do with the shape of the bowl and incoming water's inertia than it does with the rotation of the Earth. Myth busted. We got a question from a curious listener like you, and we decided to talk to an expert. Ralph Crew is the creator and co-host of Science News and Cues, also known as Snack, a Carnegie Science Center podcast. Here's the question he tackled straight from one of our friends in Brazil. The question comes from Jason in Sao Paulo, and he says, As I understand it, DNA is read in groups of three. Uh, these are called codons, by the way. And he says, How does the RNA know to read in groups of three? Where is this meta code coming from that determines how the code is read? And I think it's interesting. The RNA doesn't necessarily know how to pick out which group of three to, to read in or which reference frame. So if you have a long string of DNA, theoretically RNA could read it with in starting in three different positions, get three very different codes for proteins. And each one of these three nucleotides, by the way, just codes for one amino acid in a protein. So just a small building block. Now, the reason that this doesn't happen is that there's something called a start codon, a special code that the RNA only binds to there that begins the process. It's sort of like a begin reading the code and transcribing it into protein here, marker. And if there are problems with those markers, then you can end up with issues with the way that the DNA it codes through the RNA into making proteins. And there are actually many well-known diseases that are caused by uh, issues with mutations that cause for the incorrect translation of genes. So there you go. Ralph also went on to say that the start codon really just talks to one element of RNA. And then there's a whole other enzyme that then attaches to that. And not every start codon works in the same way. So, of course, you can always get more detailed and talk more about this stuff. But in general, his answer is a pretty good bird's eye view that should hopefully satisfy Jason's curiosity. Once again, that was Ralph Crew, who's a program development coordinator for Buell Planetarium and Observatory at Carnegie Science Center. And you can hear more from Ralph on his podcast, Science News and Cues, also known as Snack. That's S-N-A-Q. Which, by the way, Ashley and I were recently guests on. Yeah, you can listen to that episode right now. If you want to hear us talk about some curiosity and science communication type stuff, check out Snack. We'll put a link to that in today's show notes. And thanks for your question, Jason. Today's ad-free episode was brought to you by our patrons. 
Special thanks to James Paternetti, Steve Guy, Paul Larson, Sergio Moreno, and Reed for your support on Patreon. We really appreciate it. To learn more about how you can support Curiosity Daily, please visit patreon.com slash curiosity.com, all spelled out. Join us again tomorrow for the award-winning Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network. 